Okay, good evening everybody and welcome to the Lincoln Lead Seminar Series 2018. My name is Paul Stevens, I'm doing DPhil in English at Lincoln um, and as this year's MCR Academic Representative, um, I've convened this year's seminar series. Um, as you probably know, each of the eight seminars in the series features a fellow of the college, uh, a graduate student of the college and uh, an alumni of the college who will respond each week to a topical question linked to their research or professional experience. Um, the concept of the seminar series was created by uh, Heather Mann, last year's MCR academic representative, with the purpose of introducing general audiences at the college to the exciting and diverse research conducted here um, and to invite uh, broader, sometimes non-specialist audiences uh, into the spheres of expertise of the panel each week. Um, we've got a fantastic set of seminars and panellists lined up in this year's series, so um, I hope you'll join us at all the rest, and thank you for coming. I'm going to hand over now to Lauren, who's our chair for this evening, so uh, welcome and thank you. And yeah, and if I could also thank you for all the work and effort you've put into these events as the president of the academic team. You really have done all the background work to make us look good, so thank you. None of us would be possible without you. Um, well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here. Welcome to this week's Lincoln Leeds event, um, Lincoln Leeds and Philosophy. My name is Lauren Mall. I'm doing an MST in English Literature of the 18th century. And but you're not really here to listen to me, are you? Tonight we're here to discuss the question, should there be limits on free speech? A question which seems particularly relevant to us today in light of the world's current political and philosophical climate. And we'll be hearing both academic and legal perspectives from our panelists. And tonight we'll be hearing from Dr. Alexander Prescott-Couch, Ian Brownhill, and our student speaker, Benjamin Rosaccio. To give a brief introduction, Dr. Alexander Prescott-Couch is a tutorial fellow in philosophy here at Lincoln College. He is an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy. He graduated with a BA in philosophy and history from Columbia University, completed a PhD in philosophy from Harvard University, where he was a 2013 and 2014 winner of the Bowman Prize for Best Paper in Moral Philosophy. His research focuses on the philosophy of social science and political philosophy. He also has a strong interest in German philosophy. His paper, Explanation and Manipulation, was recently published in the September 2017 edition of New. Our second speaker, Ian Brownhill, is an experienced criminal defense practitioner who's practiced in all levels of courts. He graduated with a BA in jurisprudence from Lincoln College, Oxford, and earned a BBC from the College of Law. As a confident jury advocate with a busy public law practice, Ian defends protesters prosecuted for activities related to their freedom of assembly and expression, and provides criminal defense for professionals and high net worth individuals, as well as dealing with ancillary orders made by criminal courts, and does criminal work in High Court and Court of Appeal. Nominated for the Legal Aid Barrister of the Year 2015, Ian continues to handle cases for both private and insurer-funded clients as well as legally aided criminal defense work. Benjamin Musacchio is, is an NPhil student in modern languages and literatures with a focus on Russian literature. He graduated Stanford University in 2017 with a BA degree in Slavic languages and literatures and philosophy. His current research interests include the Anglo-American reception of Soviet literature and the history of Russian literary culture in Latvia. Previously, he examined American conservatives' divergent interpretations of Boris Pasternak's novel, Dr. Zhivago. He looks forward to beginning his PhD studies in Slavic at Princeton University in 2019. Without any further ado, I'd like to welcome our first panelist. So first of all, I'm just really uh, delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you today about such an important topic. And I just wanted to say a brief words of thanks to the organizers who've been really doing a lot of work to put this series together, uh, as well as uh, my co-panelists, and, and to all of you who uh, we really appreciate you coming and kind of being a part of the conversation that we're hoping to have tonight. Uh, so the topic tonight is limits of free speech, and this is a topic that's been getting a lot of media attention recently. And there are really kind of two topics that have been getting media attention with respect to questions about the limits of free speech. 
One topic arises in the legal context, and there's been a lot of discussion about hate speech law, whether or not there are certain sorts of speech that should be uh, regulated in society kind of broadly using the legal system. And then a second topic of discussion is in the university context, and there's been a lot of discussion about whether certain kind of views should be prevented in some kind of way from being expressed on university campuses. Uh, so what I'm gonna do is focus my remarks on this, have two different topics, and, and then try to draw some connections between them. Uh, so I'm gonna start by uh, talking about hate speech. So in a lot of, in many advanced democracies, uh, there are restrictions on the expression of certain kinds of views. So for example, there are laws forbidding uh, speech inciting hatred against minorities in many European countries, uh, Germany, France, the UK, Iceland, others. Uh, and those laws are often enforced. So to give kind of one instance here from the UK uh, in 2001, uh, evangelist Harry Hammond was uh, prosecuted for holding up a sign at a protest that said, quote, Jesus gives peace, Jesus is alive, stop immorality, stop homosexuality, stop lesbianism, Jesus is Lord, end quote. Uh, so for that, he was fined 300 pounds, made to pay 395 pounds in costs. Take a more recent instance, France, as uh, performer, comedian, Diodonné, who was uh, sentenced to two months in a Belgian jail and fined also about 9,000 euros uh, for writing uh, on Facebook, uh, quote, I feel like Charlie uh, Koulibaly. Uh, that was kind of right after the Charlie Hebdo uh, massacre. So, so, there, so probably few of us would endorse either of those two messages, uh, but the kind of question is whether they should be sanctioned in some kind of way. Uh, and there, opinions really diverge in different places. Uh, so but they particularly diverge between the U.S. and Europe. So if you come from America, uh, like I do, people typically think the answer is like, no, these sorts of expression, although they're bad, they shouldn't be punished in any kind of way. A lot of Americans look at those kind of judgments in a certain kind of horror, like there's some kind of like sacrilege in, in kind of punishing speech. And the reasons why they do that are probably various, but uh, often there's kind of background picture that individuals have a particularly strong liberty interest that gives the rise to some rights against the government, punishing them for the content of their speech. So this, this focus on liberty and rights is then often supplemented by various sorts of instrumental considerations that are supposed to uh, show why it is you don't want to have restrictions on uh, hate speech or other forms of pernicious speech. Um, so for example, you might worry that uh, allowing governments to punish speech will lead to some, uh, will lead to abuse or the stifling of dissent. More positively, you might think that the best way to combat bad ideas is to punish them, but rather to give them an airing and subject them to criticism. So that's here the idea is that there's some mechanisms of self-correction within the marketplace of ideas. So even if you're committed to kind of stomping out pernicious ideas, uh, the best way to do that isn't to use the legal system, it's rather to kind of let people have their say and then uh, show them why they're wrong or show third parties why they're wrong. And last, there's also been an assumption in America that even while this sort of speech is bad, uh, it's ultimately not that deeply harmful. So it's the kind of the old adage of, uh, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Uh, that kind of adage can get kind of transmuted into a kind of justification for certain constitutional protect, uh, protections of speech uh, because you might think that people's interest in regulating that kind of speech isn't so great if the harms of that speech aren't so grave. So kind of roughly those are the sort of considerations that people often have in America that make people think that uh, the government should kind of get out of the business of punishing speech for its content, even if that content is very, very bad. However, that is not the only view. Now, from the perspective of defenders of restrictions on hate speech, that's kind of many European countries, uh, this sort of absolutism about free speech can come off as a bit fanatical. So first of all, there's the consideration that you might think that a completely unregulated market of ideas isn't gonna deliver optimal outcomes. Now here, you, you would, of course, grant that you know, the government Having government, like a lot of government control of speech would probably be very bad. But the point is that it's not like the only two options are complete lack of regulation of speech and some extremely stringent government control. You might have some sort of more uh, modest regulations of speech. 
And then there the kind of background idea is that just like say in the private economy, uh, you might think that the economy functions better if there are certain kind of modest regulations with respect to what individuals are allowed to buy and sell. Uh, so too in the public sphere, uh, you're gonna get better outcomes if there are some kind of modest regulations about what people are allowed to say. So um, that's the kind of way of pu pushing back against the idea that uh, the problems that certain sorts of pernicious speech might give rise to can be adequately addressed um, just with more speech. The thought is that there really needs to be some role for government regulation. Now, second, uh, second concern that uh, people who are fans of the regulation of this kind of speech have is that uh, they often, the American, from the, the American viewpoint, uh, really underestimates the harm done by hate speech. So uh, you might know or might remember, or if you don't, you'll know now, uh, John Stuart Mill famously said uh, that, quote, you know, the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of the civil community against his will is to prevent harm to others. So this is really kind of what Mill calls the harm principle. This is a principle that's supposed to, uh, that requires that uh, if you're gonna kind of regulate someone's conduct, you need to show that that conduct is harmful. So some people appeal to that principle to justify restrictions on certain kinds of speech. However, if you're gonna do that, things become a bit complicated uh, because what you have to do is show that, uh, not just that there's some kind of serious harm, but also that um, there's some particular type of harm that justifies restricting speech. Um, the reason why you need to do that is because the fact that speech would just lead to harm just on its own is not something that typically people think provides some good justification for regulating that speech. So for example, let's say you're a speech that advocates voting for some very kind of militaristic political candidate. That, that speech might cause like a lot of harm, particularly if that candidate wins and is very militaristic. But that doesn't seem like a, the fact that that harm might be caused by that speech is not taken to be something that provides sufficient justification for regulating that kind of political speech. In fact, that's the kind of political speech in favor of candidates, even if they're bad candidates, is the kind of speech that people take to be uh, kind of paradigmatically um, the object of protection. Okay, so if speech, if you're gonna kind of approach the regulation of hate speech by looking at the harms that hate speech might cause, you need to try to focus on some particular kind of harm that's kind of specific to the case of hate speech. So what kind of harm might that be? Well, uh, for insight, we might turn uh, to Lincoln alumnus uh, Jeremy Waldron, who is a prominent legal philosopher uh, who also was here at Lincoln, as a matter of fact, while he was doing his DPhil at Oxford. So Waldron <coughs> has argued that hate speech brings about a particular kind of harm. It's a harm that offends the dignity of uh, the citizens who are the objects of that speech, and it makes them uncertain about whether or not they really have equal standing in society. Uh, and correspondingly, it kind of undermines their assurance that their kind of rights as equal citizens are gonna be protected. So here are the ideas, so, so for example, like consider the, the experience of Muslim minorities in the United States when they say see signs. So these are, these are gonna be actually real signs. Um, so quote, uh, sign says, Muslims, don't serve them, don't speak to them, don't let them in. Or kind of posters uh, on mosques that kind of label mosques as like, you know, jihad centrals. So those are all kind of real cases. Um, now, the concern with the, that kind of speech, says Waldron, is that that kind of speech sends a particular kind of message to Muslim Americans, namely a message that, well, you're not real Americans, you're not welcome here, and importantly, you're not really assured uh, that we're gonna treat you like other Americans are treated. And so the thought is, that kind of harm isn't just any particular harm, it's a kind of, uh, it's a particularly important kind of harm. It's one that consists in kind of unsettling assumptions that one is really an equal member of society. And this sort of view, the idea is that um, there's a kind of positive function uh, of hate speech restrictions. That's that what those restrictions do is uh, preserve the equal standing of members of minority groups by providing them with a particular kind of assurance that society is gonna protect their rights and standing so that hate speech restrictions are uh, kind of part of a kind of well-ordered egalitarian society. Okay, so that's kind of one argument you get from a 
Waldron's not exactly European, he's actually from New Zealand, but you know, he spent a lot of time here and kind of soaked up the, the viewpoint, I guess. Um, so anyways, so that's the that's kind of view that tries to ground hate speech restrictions in a kind of broader egalitarian ideal. Now, a lot of ways you might object to that view. Uh, I'm not gonna canvas them, I'm going to kind of leave that uh, for you to reflect on yourself. And I'm gonna move on just to make a few remarks about campus speech, which has been the other kind of real flashpoint around issues of free speech recently. So as probably everyone's aware, issues of free speech on campus have been a real hot topic. And there, I think there are kind of three main concerns with campus speech. One concern is that, a concern that certain sorts of views are not being given a platform on campuses. So for example, concern is that you hear a lot of anti-Brexit arguments at university campuses, but you don't hear that many pro-Brexit arguments. And so maybe uh, the fact that you don't hear those arguments is objectionable, it's a kind of objectionable suppression of certain viewpoints that are out there in society. Second, there's a concern about certain kinds of protest tactics that um, students generally uh, have used against speakers they disagree with. So for example, there's been a lot of famous or you know, notorious cases of uh, no platforming or shouting down speakers who have views that many members of the audience disagree with or, or threatening speakers. And then third, there's a concern about, it's a little more broad, that's about a kind of intolerant or censorious atmosphere that uh, prevents dissenting views from being voiced and considered. Uh, so those are kind of three different sorts of concerns you might have about speech on campus. Uh, what kind of unites them is that they're all concerns that get at kind of different ways in which it might be thought that free speech is being kind of limited. So when you're thinking through those the things to think through there are whether or not those cases are actually are cases where which speech is being limited, and two, if they are cases in which speech is being limited, whether or not uh, those limitations are justified. Um, so, because time is running short, I'm not going to say too much about that stuff. Uh, what I will just say is one last thing, which is that I do think that a lot of the heat that comes out in uh, around these kind of campus issues. Part of it's grounded in a certain tension between, I think, two different truisms about kind of toleration of views at universities. Because on the one hand, there's a truism that uh, universities are supposed to be places that are supposed to be particular, to like particularly tolerant of a diversity of viewpoints. Um, so people are supposed to be open-minded. Uh, on the other hand, there's this other truism that universities are places that are actually supposed to be particularly intolerant of uh, false ideas, lies, fake news. You know, that's what makes universities different from, I don't know, uh, when you get together with your family or you go to the bar or you like watch TV, there's supposed to be a lot more sensitivity to whether or not kind of views are true and so a lot more intolerance when people say things that people think are false or incoherent. And so I think the real challenge around these issues is to try to kind of figure out how you can kind of reconcile those um, two different sort of truisms, uh, and then you know, the way to do that is of course by carefully thinking through uh, what are the values that underlie those truisms, and uh, that's what you know, these events uh, and the conversations that will hopefully follow them are gonna try to help us do. Uh, thanks, I'll turn things over to my co-panelists now. Thank you so much, Dr. Christopher Kelsey. Again, over to Ian Brown. Uh, thank you very much. Um, Firstly, thanks very much for the invite. Um, barristers prefer to speak standing up because most of us are frustrated <laughs> actors. Um, you'll have to excuse me if I dance around the room a bit because I have a tendency to. I speak with my arms as well and I have all those bad habits which were supposed to be beaten out of me during my pupillage. But I failed miserably and so you'll have to excuse me today if my arms get distracting or anything I says might be distracting. Any words I use might be distracting because that's what happens with barristers. And one of the things I wanted to do this evening was to demonstrate something not only about my profession but also about speech. And so rather than write down what I was going to say or use the dreaded PowerPoint, um, I did what I did when I was defending back in the magistrate's court. So in the magistrate's court you'd often get papers about half an hour before if you were lucky you'd go into court and you'd have to say something on behalf of the poor soul in the dock. And lots of the poor souls who I represented in the dock back in the day were protesters. Um, one of my worst experiences, um, although looking back on it now is one of my happiest, was going to the City of Westminster Magistrates Court, appearing in front of the Chief Magistrate for England and Wales, representing ten protesters. 
And those ten protesters had all been summoned to court that day because they'd tried to occupy Parliament Square. Um, during the Occupy movement, they'd set up tents there, and the police had come along and arrested them all. It had all been jolly fun. Uh, the police had laughed as they'd arrested them. Uh, the protesters weren't taken away in vans. Instead, they were taken away in coaches, and they sat next to their arresting officer and had a chat on the way back to the Nick. Um, but anyway, that day in court, they didn't particularly like uh, the Chief Magistrate for England and Wales. He didn't particularly like them. He certainly didn't like me, as many judges don't. Um, and sadly, the protesters decided they were going to um, exercise their rights to freedom of speech in the dock in the uh, city, uh, city of Westminster, the Magistrates' Court, by singing, We All Live in a Fascist Country, to the tune of Yellow Submarine. Um, they then um, decided they weren't going to leave the dock when told to do so by the Chief Magistrate and got into their sleeping bags and were carried one by one to the cells. So in terms of limits on freedom of speech, the, the, the first one I wanted to talk about this evening in reality was self-regulation. Uh, and the reason I wanted to talk about that primarily is because in recent times, I find myself really sad. And the reason I'm sad is because I go onto Twitter and I go onto Facebook and I see what people write about all sorts of different things, from points of law. I'm constantly hearing how the European Convention on Human Rights is a terrible thing, the Human Rights Act is a terrible thing, all the way through to basic things about everyday life, people debating things as mundane as what should happen, what's good etiquette on the tube, or what we should be doing in terms of Brexit, moving forward, very basic things about how we live. Um, and one of the things which strikes me about Twitter in particular is this thing that appears at the top of people's Twitter profiles, and it says, opinions are my own. What does that mean? <laughs> opinions are your own. Of course they're your own opinions. You're the one there putting it out. Retweets aren't necessarily an endorsement. Well, what is a retweet then? You're putting it out there. You're promulgating that speech to other people. And one of the um, interesting things about self-regulation, freedom of speech, is in my mind, that should be the principal way that we restrict freedom of speech. We should all be able to self-regulate what we say to make it acceptable in a way that we can all rub along together. When I was in the JCR here, um, I think it was about 2004, 2005, just showing my age. The bursar at the time decided that he wanted to push through at the SCR so that um, different room rates were charged in different types of room in the college. So if you got a really awful room in the mitre, as I did <laughs> twice, you would pay less than somebody who had one of the nicer rooms over here. And the JCR got together and we all talked about it. And we were against it. And there were lots of to and fro about what we should do. And the JCR president at the time, who was very right on, very much a campaigner, I point out now he's a barrister who tends to represent the government, um, <laughs> said, well, I'll go and speak to the, I'll, I'll go and speak to the rector, I'll sort it all out. Came back from the rector, the rector said, well, it's up to the, it's up to the SCR. We'll see if the burst can persuade them. So somebody, you may guess who, suggested that it would be a good idea if we had a protest in front court. And we did have a protest in front court. And as the SCR came through front court, they had to pass lots of the JCR who were brave enough to stand there. And it was actually, believe me honestly, a heart-in-mouth moment. Because I thought, oh, this could go really badly. They may not react well. This is Oxford. We're not really known for protest. Um, but everybody stood there in silence. And the wonderful thing about everybody standing there in silence was um, it actually made the bursar look like a bit of a villain. He wasn't a villain. He was a very nice man, actually. Um, and he came in, he bowed and went, yes, yes, boo hiss, boo hiss to all of us. And we all still stood silent. Anyway, the SCR um, decided not to put in the different rent rates, and we won. And I, I'd like to think that our little silent protest had something to do with it. But that was all about self-regulation, in that we decided to protest, and we regulated what we said, or didn't say, in a way to try and have an impact. 
You then move to the law and the law restricting what people say. And the main piece of law which has done that, which is the most controversial, and it's been one which troubled me, especially in the early years of my career, when I was traipsing to and from magistrates' courts here and there, was Section 5 of the Public Order Act. Basically, criminalising somebody for doing something which is insulting, saying insulting words, displaying insulting signs and behaviour. And in terms of that, um, one of the most stupid examples, and stupid in two fashions, was a student at Oxford who was walking down, I think it was actually Tell Street, it was either Tell Street or High Street somewhere, and a chap on a police horse, I think it was a chap on a police horse, uh, rode past. And this student, who was probably a little bit stupid and probably a little bit more drunk, said to the police officer, is your horse gay, mate? Stupid thing to say. Absolutely meaningless, absolutely stupid considering where you're a student, but that's what he said. Police officer takes exception to the sexuality of his horse being questioned and arrests said student. Said student is taken to the cells. Said student is facing a criminal sanction. Eventually, the Crown Prosecution Service dropped the case. But for doing something as stupid as that, someone was arrested and their liberty was taken away. That's really quite a draconian restriction. And the reason why Section 5 of the Public Order Act came into force in the first place was actually as a tool against the miners' strike. It was a tool against miners who were causing problems for Thatcher and her government. 2014, the House of Lords took away the word insulting from Section 5, but it's still on the statute books. People can still be arrested for doing something which is effectively causing somebody else to be upset. I've defended a variety of these people. One lady I represented had set fire to an effigy of Boris Johnson, arrested, taken to the cells, trial, specialist prosecutor brought in, me brought in, all for setting fire to a doll dressed up like the Mayor of London, as he was at the time. So there is some risk in the law restricting freedom of speech. It can quite often come out of really good intentions. So the obvious example is the Protection from Harassment Act. People get stalked. Stalkers tend to be nasty, fanatical individuals who pick on someone and then they keep going. So the law reacts to it and the law passes the Protection from Harassment Act. Recently it made stalking a criminal offence. But there's also civil injunctions that can be sought on behalf of people who say they're suffering from harassment, alarm and distress by the actions of another. I've represented now in the civil court a number of individuals who have upset people in public office. So I've defended civil claims for injunctions where the people being upset, some of them local elected officials, some of them working for the police force, and some of them working for another uh, public authority who I won't name. In all those circumstances, public funds were used to curtail what bloggers had said on blogging websites and on Twitter. Is that the right thing to do? Perhaps I'll find out from you later. Because in reality, when it comes to limits on freedom of speech, what we're seeing at the moment is a tend towards a third kind of regulation, and that is a form of social regulation. So society at large deciding what speech is acceptable and not. So it's not the law, it's not somebody deciding themselves. Instead, it's the pylon scenario. I'm probably showing my age now uh, and a bit about my background, but anybody who's watched a rugby match will see that when somebody ends up on the floor with a ball, everybody else piles on top. And if that ball that you've got in your hand is something that people don't like, you're going to find lots and lots of heavy men and women, depending, on top of you. And they're trying to stop that person getting up. And that's what goes on with social regulation. Now, social regulation of speech is, in some respects, a good thing. I don't know if any of you have seen, again, perhaps I spend far too much time on trains watching social media. There's a, um, there's a recent piece of footage 
um, from an overground train in London, where there's two people sat next to each other. One chap's white British, the next, to, the next person next to him is probably, I think he's um, French or Belgian. Anyway, argument disrupts between the two of them. White British guy starts going mad, starts going, get back to your own country, this is my own country, mate, this is what we voted Brexit for, and it escalates. He starts swearing. People say to him on the carriage, just stop it, mate, just stop it. He doesn't stop. And it carries on. So people intervene. Now, you can understand why people intervene in those circumstances, because effectively, what's going on is a disruption in people's normal, peaceful, everyday life. The difficulty comes when you're having arguments, debates, like today. These topics, interesting, pertinent, absolutely. Controversial? Maybe. As controversial as they could be? No. What if today we were having conversations about far-right extremists, abortion, things like that? Who should we give a platform to and who shouldn't we? I represented a number of people from an organisation called Class War, and they absolutely hated the middle classes, Oxbridge, everything else. Um, I got on with them very well. I completely disagreed with a lot of what they said. They completely disagreed with me. They took the mick out of me for going to Oxford. We got on very well. I defended them, and I will always defend their right to speak freely, because that's the right thing to do. And in my mind, universities especially student bodies, should try and promote speech and debate which is sustainable and done so that people can express what they are saying. Going back to my point at the start about preparing cases on the back of a fag packet, the amount of words on here is about as many words as you can get in a tweet. Far too much time, effort and energy is spent debating the contents of tweets, rather than looking at society and looking at how we facilitate people being able to speak, being able to say what they want to say, and being heard. Only when you let people express themselves, hear them, and challenge them, can you reach the true aim in all of this, which is freedom of speech. Thank you very much for listening. I hope my hands didn't strap too much. <laughs> yeah, thanks again to very fascinating perspectives. And we'll turn it over to Ben, our last speaker for tonight. And then I'll be back up here to open us up again for our question and answer. So Ben, take it away. Great. Um, so my guiding question is this. What are the proper limits, if any, on free speech in the academy? The university, that is. I divide my talk into three parts. First, I explore William F. Buckley Jr.'s discussion of academic freedom and the role of professional competence in determining protected speech. And for those unfamiliar, William F. Buckley Jr. was the architect of post-World War II American conservatism. He was an editor, an essayist, a television host, a harpsichordist, and much else besides. Second, I examine the fraught territory of defining professional competence in the humanities, and in so doing, I identify the drawbacks of both permissive and restrictive speech regimes. And third, I offer three intellectual virtues that help us fix the limits of allowable speech. It's the sort of bird's eye view of the talk. So to begin, to discern the role of free speech in the university, we must first understand the essence of the university as an institution, the proper extension or limitation of academic free speech follows from what an academic institution essentially is. Here's a working definition from the 20th century philosopher Karl Jaspers, quotation, the university is the corporate realization of man's basic determination to know, end quote. Pursuing knowledge and coming to grips with the consequences of this pursuit constitute, in my mind, the purpose of the university qua corporate body. I argue that a free speech regime in the university may still be free when it censors speech that antagonizes the university's constitutive quest for knowledge. Like the polity that prohibits certain speech acts to protected citizens from violence and defamation, the university body may properly protect itself from impediments to its pursuit of knowledge mission. 
So I will concretize this point by turning to William F. Buckley Jr. and his provocative reflection on academic freedom, God and Man at Yale, which was published in 1951. This book, God and Man at Yale, discusses examples of illegitimate interference into the university's mission. Buckley conceives of these interferences as expressions that deform the essence of the university, the corporate body that pursues and makes sense of knowledge. Buckley circa 1951 would today be considered a very rare bird. He is a right-winger offering a defense of speech restrictions in the university. Buckley was particularly lucid on the regulative role of experts in establishing boundaries of protected speech in a particular discipline. And his arg argument, which I will adumbrate right now, has um, contemporary defenders in people like Robert Post, a uh, legal theorist at Yale Law School, and Brian Leiter, a philosopher at the University of Chicago, um, neither of whom share Buckley's conservative politics. So Buckley insists that faculty must voice, quote, professionally competent views to enjoy free speech protections. Uh, another quotation from Buckley, an example in fact. The mathematician who advances that it is possible to take the square root of a minus number is demonstratively in error and thus can be rightfully censored or dismissed. Buckley argues that in the humanities, the definition of professionally competent is much more difficult to define than in the sciences. English professors who extol the literary value of Gertrude Stein may safely be within the bounds of professional competence. Yet so too are those who scorn Stein as a charlatan. Gertrude Stein's disciples and Stein's skeptics may both occupy faculty chairs in Yale's English department, according to Buckley. This is a, that was Buckley's example, the Stein example. But Buckley doesn't tarry in literary studies or mathematics for long. He is most interested in the moral and social sciences. Here he wishes to narrow the definition of professional competence. Buckley, in fact, deems professionally incompetent those faculty members who savage the salubrious orthodoxies of Christianity and liberal individualism. For Buckley, any professor who voices anti-Christian animus or publicly supports socialism or communism has no place at Yale. It was, even in 51, an extremely provocative argument. Most important for our purposes, though, is that Buckley recognized that academic freedom involves, in fact, the censorship of incompetent speech. And I follow Buckley in recognizing that irrational, anti-intellectual speech impedes the university's essential imperative, and such speech should be expelled. Consider some additional examples of professional incompetence. A geographer who becomes convinced that the earth is flat and preaches this claim can be rightfully censored. So too, physiologists that assert the congenital inferiority of a non-white brain. These expressions have no place in the university because of their manifest irrationality. No expert could adduce credible arguments to support these claims. And this is an important point. These claims are not merely wrong. They do not qualify as morally or intellectually serious positions because they do not trade in the currency of bona fide argument. It's fairly straightforward to identify irrational falsity in the natural and experimental sciences, the mathematician, the geographer, etc. But how do we draw the boundary between rationally tenable, though perhaps unpopular speech, and speech that is illogical, inimical to the university's mission? This query radiates special urgency when we consider the humanities. Buckley was right. Disagreement in the humanities runs much deeper when compared to other disciplines. For this reason, the proper methods, objects, and ultimate purposes of many humanistic disciplines are constantly put to question. For instance, what is the proper practice of philosophy? This is a contentious, productive, generative inquiry for philosophers. Another example, who produces meaning, readers or authors? This is a globally debated question among philologists. I would argue, though, that many natural and experimental scientists would have little use for the relevant parallel of these very capacious inquiries. Uh, we can link humanists' disagreement on first principles with our reflection on academic freedom. In the humanities and social sciences, experts often disagree on what qualifies as a rational position, as an argument. There are myriad examples of experts who hold well-credentialed colleagues in contempt, not because they are wrong, but because their colleagues are not regarded as making rational arguments. 
I'll concretize this. Consider the contemporary philosopher hitherto mentioned, Brian Leiter. In an essay concerning academic free speech, Leiter disparages the study of Hegel, Martin Heidegger, Ludwig Wittgenstein as, quote, mere cultish preoccupation. Of course, there are tenured philosophers who consider Heidegger and Wittgenstein, among others, to offer a limitative insight. Some happily identify themselves as Heideggerians or Wittgensteinians. Yet Leiter claims that their intellectual activity is not intellectual at all, but instead it's just self-congratulatory backslapping. He admits the necessity of teaching Hegel, Heidegger, etc., only as a matter of intellectual history. These thinkers, quoting Leiter, quotation, cannot be invoked as guides to truth. Leiter evidently desires to ship his wayward colleagues, Heideggerian, Wittgensteinian colleagues, over into the history department or chuck them out of the university altogether. Now, Leiter doesn't elaborate on why he considers Heideggerians to be non-intellectual and cultish. His only defense of this type of censorship is that Heideggerians, Wittgensteinians, et al., supposedly attend to in-group solidarity as opposed to disinterested truth-seeking, Wissenschaft. How we evaluate his justification for this exile is not of central concern. And if you think I'm being uncharitable in my reconstruction of his argument, you can consult the paper yourself. Its title is Why Academic Freedom? And it's available on Brian Leiter's Academia EDU page. This is sort of beside the point. I want to highlight with this example a none too rare phenomenon, specifically the phenomenon of experts, frequently humanists, decrying their colleagues' lack of rational argument and censoring them on this basis. How can we resolve then this disagreement on what qualifies as rational argument and thus as permissible speech? There seem to me two poles of possibility. The first pole is an everything goes logic that would protect anything that smells like a rational argument. The second pole is defined by more rigid disciplinary boundaries that exclude incompetent speech. I argue that instantiating either pole does not seem terribly wise. There are multiple dangers, first, of an everything goes regime. Uh, giving a platform to non-intellectual opinionating is a waste of our time. A laissez-faire intellectual environment may permit offensive or morally obtuse speech. And three, impressionable young students may be misled into irrationality and invidious ideology in an intellectual cacophony. But there is also, uh, there are dangers of a tightly regulated regime. Uh, this principal one to me is, is, the, is, follows, is as follows. Uh, this tightly regulated regime may unfairly exclude competing frameworks for knowledge pursuit in a particular discipline. Uh, here's a quotation from a, a theorist, Akhil Bilgrami. Quotation, if we, fought, if we allow for frameworks of investigation other than our own, we make for an attractively diverse intellectual ethos and allow the creativity of different sorts of minds to flower. Plurality then, in content and form of argument, will plausibly lead to more robust understandings and discoveries. So I don't today have a definitive administrative proposal on exactly where between the two poles of extreme allowance and extreme restriction we should fall, though I do maintain that clinging to one or to the other would be foolish. But I close my talk by trying to find a place in between the poles, and I try to do this um, I suggest we do this by reviving the following intellectual virtues. Uh, I identify three. First, the love of truth. Second, intellectual humility. And three, tolerance. Notice here, before I dive into these specific virtues, notice here the transition from discourse about institutional procedure to discourse about the quality of soul. Consider whether individual moral improvement may be more effective in properly bounding and preserving academic freedom versus tinkering with administrative bylaws. So for the first virtue, the love of truth is the foundation for university intellectual life. Serious thought is impossible if the investigation is at any stage infected with prejudice or illicit predisposition. Desiring truth, following in its footsteps as assiduously as possible, undergirds the Western scholarly ethos. The second, virtue. Intellectual humility follows from a love of truth. Fixed verities are difficult to pin down in any field. The history of inquiry is full of false starts, rabbit holes, and overturned paradigms. To nourish academic freedom, then, we must be humble about that which we believe to know. Humility exhorts us to approach opposing viewpoints with charity. 
believing in the possibility of truth, while also affirming the improbability of fully possessing it. Finally, I come to tolerance. Again, this virtue follows in succession from the previous two virtues. For if you're committed to truth, and if you recognize the perilous path to truth, then you reasonably tolerate a plurality of positions on matters of serious importance. Tolerance, however, is not celebration, and neither is tolerance approbation. One need not celebrate or even approve of a rational position in order to tolerate it. In fact, toleration, I would argue, is most true to its essence when it is toleration of unpopular, though rationally tenable, positions and behaviors. Habituating these virtues would presumably have numerous salutary effects vis-a-vis -vis academic freedom. The tolerant and humble lovers of truth would more clearly discern the boundary of competent versus incompetent speech. Why? Well, these lovers of truth would possess supple intellects and would be glad to be proven wrong, to be led from ignorance to ever richer understanding. And yet, their desire to know would prompt impatience with posturing and pretense. They themselves would resist the seduction of ideologies and prejudices that masquerade as rational argument. So I, my few minutes remaining, I'll conclude with a quotation from the theologian Paul Griffiths. He emphasizes the high moral seriousness of the academic vocation. And in, on this point, I'm in full agreement with him. Writing about the academic vocation, he says this, each of us should be tense with the effort of it, thrumming like a tautly triple-woven steel thread with the work of it, consumed by the fire of it, ever eager for more of it. We have neither time nor resources to waste. Considering my audience, I think that this serves as a fitting conclusion to my talk. Thank you very much. Again, thank you so much, panelists, for joining us and for um, just presenting us so much to talk and think about. Uh, if, if perhaps you have one or two comments for each other's presentations to begin our discussion. I have one thought on, on Brian Leiter censoring the Heideggerians. Sure. So the, one thing I think it actually is worth thinking about is whether or not like failing to support certain things being at the university constitutes a kind of censorship. I think that's something that's a kind of open question that's really useful to try to think through. Because from, from Leiter's point of view, I think probably what he's thinking is something like, well, I'm not really censoring the Heideggerians. I'm simply kind of not supporting them being part of the institution. But that's not to censor them, yes. you know? So like... Censor, censoring them in the, in the university context and that you don't extend invitations to them to give papers. You're not going yeah. to approve of their tenure, et cetera. You wouldn't take a PhD student interested in Heidegger. Yeah. I guess I was just wondering if that kind of raises... When people talk about censorship and suppression, Often there's the, the implication that goes along with that is that there's some kind of very special justification required to uh, suppress something that's out there. But you might think that's not obviously the case with failing to support something. You know, because, because, because if you don't support something, you're not doing anything wrong unless it's the case that the thing you're not supporting hasn't claimed to be supported. But that's something that might be disputed in this particular context. But that's what I was thinking. So. I'm not saying that that distinction between failing to support and censoring is always like so airtight, and there's gonna be a lot of cases in which probably it's like not clear which one is going on. Like it's like Facebook. Facebook doesn't allow certain reviews. I mean, is it failing to support them or is it censoring them? But I was just thinking that it might be useful to try to think through that in this context because it might be useful. And um, I know that one question I had coming into mind was this idea of uh, social regulation of free speech versus a legal regulation of free speech, and is there? Um, this idea of a social regulation as, as sort of we're protecting ourselves rather than needing the government to protect us, is that um, a fair point? Yes, I suppose, yes. To what extent are we able to regulate each other in, for the purposes of maintaining good societal order? Well, the, the, the concept, uh, before you had things like Section 5 of the Public Order Act, and you used to have um, the European Convention on Human Rights. You had sort of two interesting concepts legally, which are sort of linked to social regulation. I just want to bring them up very briefly. Uh, the first is breach of the peace. Um, the idea that if you breach the Queen's peace, that you were um, liable to be arrested. And breach of the peace was never really, it still exists. It's never really been something which has been nailed down particularly by the common law. So instead it was something used by um, provincial law enforcement, uh, 
generally magistrates and police officers when they came about to restrict the conduct of others. And the other way of doing it was the, was the riot act. So reading people the riot act, they were literally read it. Um, and they were legal methods, but in reality they were methods of quashing dissent. And, and now we have this sort of different phenomenon whereby we don't necessarily resort to the law because instead we can shut down people in different ways. And this idea that, what I really don't like is the idea of, especially at places like universities, the idea that, say we had an evening like this evening, and if half of you decided you didn't like what one of us was going to come and say, you would sit there and you would shout, or you might come and stand really close to us and shout in our faces, or you might be violent, or you might you know, cajole people on the way in. That isn't social regulation, that's more intimidation. And there's, and there's a distinction. I think it's about being able to say things and being able to challenge them without fear. I also think it's a two-way street to get back to my point on virtue cultivation. Mm. I think we have to cultivate the virtue of not giving offense in the way that we speak, and I think this was, or at the least, be sensitive to audience, to context, etc. Yeah. Of this, of this sort of social surroundings. Yeah. yeah. But then also we have to be, we have to cultivate the virtue of tolerance. You know, we live in multicultural, multi, I think multi-religious societies. We're yeah. going to rub up against people who have a profoundly different understanding of the world and man's place in it. Absolutely. So I, I, I sort of see it. We should attack, attack it from both sides. One of the big problems there is who come, who ends up as being the arbiter of all this. Because at the moment, the arbiter is, tends to be Mark Zuckerberg or a judge. Uh, and I don't think either of them are ideally placed, to be entirely honest with you. <laughs> Shouldn't say that about judges, especially when I was going to have a podcast. There we are. <laughs> we won't tell. <laughs> My Facebook account will be shut down tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think with also in this issue of social regulation, there's this kind of interesting question about how you understand like negative judgments about other's speech and whether mm-hmm. those things that are whether negative judgments about other's speech are really analogous to like, sanctions in some kind of way. So often there's this background assumption that in, in some of the concerns about, say, censoriousness, which is that, well, I'm being censored if people don't like what I say and they yeah. negatively judge what I say. I mean, there's, there seems to be some kind of truth in that, but there also seems to be a lot of falsity in that because like, the mere fact that you're negatively judging what someone is saying is not in of itself doesn't seem like a sanction. Like, you know, if all of you in the audience kind of come to think like, oh God, I can't believe I came to this thing, it was so bad, like I can't believe I had to hear this talk that this like philosophy fellow gave, it's terrible. Uh, I'm not being sanctioned by you, I don't think. Right? I might not like it, it might be really sad, it might prevent me from like doing other talks, that kind of thing. You know, so in terms of like affecting my behavior, it might be quite significant, but, but it's not clear that it's social regulation of the form of this in any sense analogous to the kind of role of say like legal punishment in the legal sphere. So note that. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, as, as ironic as this is, I, I do have to put a limit on the free speech conversation tonight. <laughs> and we don't keep Lincoln's lovely dining staff waiting for us. <laughs>